So how many of you have already embarked on your New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Okay. How many have already fallen short on your New Year's resolutions? Great. We're pretty consistent here at our church. Starting off a new year, I think, on the right foot is a good manner in which to proceed. And so for our church this morning, I wanted to take the first couple of weeks of this new year to answer some of the questions that I've gotten over the last year in 2019 concerning our church, and um, also a little bit about the you know changing culture that we find ourselves in and how it all fits together, how our church fits in, uh, together with the area in which we are ministering and so forth. Uh, just a little bit about who we are and why we do what we do and so forth. I felt just to start off a new year, just reminding all of us of the principles in which we founded this church on. Today is our 23rd year anniversary as a church. Some of you may not know that. And the principles in which we started this church upon are the same principles we're going to continue this church upon. Over the last year, I have read many articles in Christianity Today and the Christian Post, etc., about the church is feeling that it's necessary to reinvent themselves to maintain a relevance with the culture that they are surrounded by. And I always get a little leery when I hear that word reinvent themselves um, because I believe the Bible is clear on the manner in which the church is meant to interact with the culture that it is within. The study of the church in the New Testament or in the Bible in general is, is called ecclesiology. That's the technical term for it. God has laid down parameters that the church should operate within. And as the church now looks at 2020 and this new decade that we're entering into, many believe that the principles that are laid out in the passages of Scripture that the, that the church should be founded upon and built upon and uh, operate within have become antiquated and out of date. In fact, we find that the Archbishop of uh, England, uh, I don't remember what region, but of the Anglican Church there in England uh, uh, recently stated at the beginning of the new year that he believes that the sexual um, morality of the Bible is outdated and therefore no longer should be enforced within the church. And this is one of the compromising methods in which the church uh, believes that in reinventing themselves in this way that we can become more relevant that we can be more welcoming, that we can reach more people, etc. Jesus Christ never used the methodology of compromise to reach anybody. Okay? Now, I believe that the church in some way has become irrelevant in our society, but not due to the biblical principles in which it stood upon. I believe that the church has become irrelevant, irrelevant in our culture because it's moved away from the biblical principles in which the church was meant to be founded upon. And so I wanted to contextualize for you in 2020, as we move forward, as we enter into this new decade, and show you how the principles in which God has asked us to operate the church within are still relevant today. Now, are there aspects of the church that need to change over time? Of course. You know, in 2019, we found that our cassette ministry here at the church was very unfruitful. Okay, let it sink in. I know it's early. Okay, we don't have a cassette ministry, okay? But I was wondering, people saying, oh, well, I should have taken advantage of that. If you still have a cassette player, God bless you. I have a reel-to-reel and an A-track that I won't part with, no. Obviously, there are methods that have no longer, the technology has moved on and so forth. And yes, you can move away from those things. However, though, some of the key components that the scripture lays down for us are are items that are not meant to be moved away from. And I believe that when we founded the church and, and, and God began it, it's truly a work of the Lord, 
in every way, shape, and form, that these were timeless, absolutely timeless principles. So I want to tell you what we're all about as a church family. And I want to put it in the context of our current culture. And during the next couple of weeks, I also want to address some very specific issues about our church that I think we need to look at. And it all begins in Acts chapter 2. I believe Acts chapter 2 is where the church actually began in a very organic, uh, a very natural way, just as Jesus said it was going to. And of course, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, and I would encourage you to really begin to dive into this chapter because it's, it's absolutely incredible at what God does. But of course, it begins with a group of disciples, about 120, in an upper room praying. Specifically, praying and waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And then after the Holy Spirit arrives in the unique fashion in which it does, with a sound of a rushing wind and the tongue of fire appearing upon the heads of the individuals there in that upper room, being filled with the Spirit, the the apostles then come out and begin to speak in other languages. Those languages were known to those who were in Jerusalem at that time, for this is where we are located. It is the Feast of Pentecost one of the high feasts of the nation of Israel, and Jerusalem is swollen past its capacity at this time. And as these individuals filled with the Holy Spirit come out onto the rooftop of the place in which they were gathered, and they're praising God in these other languages, the people hearing them are are, are, are a little astonished because they see that these are just mere fishermen and they should not be able to speak in these various languages in which they are speaking and they're hearing the praises of God being spoken, begin to inquire about what is going on here. And of course, they come to the uh, incredible theological discovery, well, they just must be drunk with wine, you know. And then Peter gives them a biblical explanation of what's happening. Showing them that this is what the prophet Joel had prophesied so many years earlier. And then Peter invites them to receive Christ, to repent of their sins and to believe on Jesus Christ. And after hearing Peter's message, the Bible says the individuals who were listening were cut to the heart. They were convicted greatly by what was being said. And they cried out to Peter, what must we do to have eternal life? What must we do to be saved? And Peter explains it to him. And 3,000 people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ in that moment. What do you do with them then? And verses 41 on give us the explanation of what the apostles did with these newfound Christians, these individuals, And they began to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And notice with me here in verse 42 and 43. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking in bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number their number day by day those who were being saved. This just is a, just a beautiful, organic demonstration in how the church began. It wasn't in, you know, compiled demographic studies. It, it wasn't looking at all the different social issues that they could address. It, it wasn't trying to market them to gain as much market share of the Christian community that they could within the area in which they were. They were praying. 
and waiting on the Holy Spirit's arrival. Now, they weren't doing this because they felt they needed to do this. They were doing this because Jesus told them to do this. In Acts chapter 1, verses 8, if you turn there with me, Jesus made it abundantly clear. And in verse 6, right before his ascension, so when they had come together, they asked him, this is the apostles now asking the Lord. The Lord has, of course, risen. He has been seen by the 500. He is now about to ascend back to the Father. But the apostles and the disciples, as we've been going through the book of Luke together, are still wondering if the kingdom of God and the kingdom uh, is going to be restored to the nation of Israel. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But he says to them in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, they were waiting for those events prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus will accomplish on his second coming. But for now, he said to them, I want you to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that he may empower you to be witnesses for me here in Jerusalem and to the utter ends of the earth. And so the very first principle, as I was compiling this list over 23 years ago, and growing up in the church in which I had, I got saved here at a Calvary chapel, I realized that the beginning of the church needed to be a work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that I could not formulate. It's not something that I could just plan and then implement. It had to be more than that. God had to be in it. God had to be leading it. God had to be paving the way for it. And as we were praying about starting this church in this area, in fact, it was the Carpentersville area in which we started, I initially was hesitant as I was approached by my pastor. I was on staff as an assistant pastor at another Calvary chapel. And I felt that there were too many churches at that time already. But the Bible study that we had going out here, many who were attending didn't have a home church. And it seemed like the natural progression. And so we took a step out in faith after a year of prayer. And I knew that if this was going to be fruitful, now I'm not going to use the word successful because that's very subjective, isn't it? Successful can be determined by some by the number of people who come. It can be determined by some by the facilities in which you have. It can be determined by the number of professions for Christ. It can be determined by all these different factors. Successful. What is a successful church? That's something that many need to ask themselves. I was looking for a fruitful church, a healthy church. It never was our goal to be the largest. It was never our desire to uh, give people, as some had requested, the most bang for their tithing buck. We actually had that said to us one time. We just wanted to be a healthy church. And we knew that it all began with the leading of the Holy Spirit. God leading it. And we believe this is consistent, of course, with Scripture. When Zechariah says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Or the psalmist when he wrote, that unless the Lord builds the house, the house will be built in vain. So we didn't want to do anything apart from him. And if dad's going to do all the work, then I got the easiest job in the world, right? Well, of course, there's a lot of work even when he's leading. And there's a lot of difficulties that still occur. But knowing this, I had an older gentleman, one of my mentors who went home to be with the Lord, say to me, he says, Eric, as long as you know the Lord is leading and is with you, you can withstand anything. And I felt that was so true. Today, when I 
view websites of churches in the area and I get curious and I like to look at the websites and see what they're doing and listen to some of their messages and you know and then I always like to look at their statements of faith and you know I've noticed that over the last 10 years the statements of faith have become very generic have you noticed that you know very very uh, filled with a lot of ambiguity but specifically when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit within the church. Now for some, that, <laughs> that, uh, that might be a red flag for some because you've come from a hyper-Pentecostal background and, and you've seen the abuses and the, and the silliness that manifests in some of the church that the Spirit is given credit for and so forth and and you, and you see it and, you just, and you're turned off by it, I understand. But then they, there's other churches that go completely the other way and, and they're so dry that the Holy Spirit doesn't even seem present in any of it. And, and you, know, you really don't understand the relationship between the Spirit and the church and the Spirit and the individual and so forth. And so first and foremost... I believe that we needed a healthy understanding of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, the doctrinal understanding of who He is, and then His interaction with the church. Now, Acts chapter 2 isn't a comprehensive chapter on all of the workings of the church. Obviously, you find that throughout the New Testament, through through the epistles specifically how elders are appointed, how church discipline is rendered, how interaction between members of the church should be conducted, and so forth. But the Spirit of God leading and us being obedient to the Spirit of God. And how is that, ascer- how is that ascertained? How do we know? How can we gauge that? Just like they did. Through prayer. Prayer. Praying, asking God to lead. Of course, his word is the final authority in all things. And the spirit of God is not going to work outside the privy of the word. Though shall we shall know that it is of him, he will work within the boundaries of the scriptures and know that it is him who is leading. So secondly, we needed to be a prayer, praying church. Now they were praying, waiting on the Holy Spirit, and notice they didn't do anything until he came. Confident with his leading, we began the church, and 23 years later, we're still here. And as the Spirit continues to lead and and continues to work, our job here, first and foremost, us as leaders and as you as the congregation, we must be praying, people, and waiting on God and waiting on the Lord, and allow the Spirit to build the church. For example, this building that we're sitting in enjoying this morning. This building was offered to us in 2008, and we were in a school at that time. We couldn't afford it. We couldn't even come close to affording it. And so we allowed the Spirit to close the door at that time. And in 2008, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in 2011, we were approached again and asked this time if we wanted to lease this facility, and now it was completely affordable. And once we took that step in faith, God then provided everything we needed for it, from the finances to the actual furniture that you're sitting on. God provided it all. Because where God guides, God provides. And though he closed the door in 2008 and we said, okay, Lord, well, you know, if you took care of us this long, we'll just wait on you. Open the door now. And so people ask, well, what happens when the lease is over? Well, God might be building our next building for us. I don't know. Or maybe he'll keep us here. I don't know. But that's part of the walk of faith that we have as a church. And 23 years later, we are still debt-free as a church. Because, again, if God doesn't provide it, then we we believe like Walmart. If Walmart doesn't have it, you don't need it. Okay? So understanding the Holy Spirit, this is an overview today. We're going to get into more details as we move forward in the next couple of weeks, few weeks. 
prayer. The next thing that I saw in Acts chapter 2 was the opportunity for evangelism. Now this is a huge question. Should the church be created as an evangelistic center, meaning that the purpose of the church is for evangelism? Or does God have another plan in mind for the church? Well, the examples of evangelism found in the New Testament appear to be more consistent with individuals going out from the church, evangelizing within the world, sharing the love of Christ with people, showing their, you know, them the uh, work that God has done in their own lives and the incredible uh, transformation that's taking place in their own lives, and then drawing people on to Christ through that witness and example, and then, of course, leading them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ by the proclamation of the gospel. And so, interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 2, which of course is a unique situation, we're talking with Jewish people who had all the background of Judaism and so forth, they asked a question of Peter, what is going on here? Why are you guys doing what you're doing? How are you guys doing what you're doing? It must be new wine, you know. I find that most effective evangelism begins when we interact with the world and begin to answer the questions that they're asking. For example, when I got saved, uh, boy, I say it like, when I got saved, they didn't even have cars. No, you know, when I got saved, it's interesting because the study of the end times was so prevalent in the church at that time. People were curious in how everything was going to come to an end. And the book of Revelation was being taught in many different churches at different times. And so that seemed to be the question that people were asking at that time. But today, that's not the question people are asking at this time. And so if you lead into a conversation with one of your friends or coworkers or family members and say, you know, the rapture of the church or God's coming back and so forth, you know, they're going, yeah, okay, good, you know, it's here, okay, one of those, honey, close the door next time. And no, people are asking more inward questions now. Who am I? What is life all about? Where do I fit in? Questioning their most basic elements of their being. Why am I surrounded with so many people but yet feel so lonely inside? Those are the questions that we can begin to answer and lead into an evangelistic relationship with people. Showing them that the Bible has answers for those questions. Showing them that God can and God alone is the only one that can answer those truly, truly deep, penetrating questions. And the answers are there. But as a church and as Christians, we need to be listening. You know, we're so quick to be speaking all the time and, and trying to push our views onto somebody else. We need to listen to people and where they're coming from. You know, when I go to the local Starbucks by my house at Streets of Woodfield, I, I inadvertently get caught up in a conversation at one time or another, and usually it's just saying hi to somebody and then letting the conversation take its natural course. You'd be shocked at how much people want to share about themselves. Sometimes it's a little TMI, you know, a little too much. But uh, it's interesting because once you listen to their story, they're more than willing to listen to yours. I'm a strong proponent of that. But we need to be listening. And in 2020, in our evangelistic efforts, I want you to be listening to the people around you. What questions are they asking? Where are they, you know, where are they at? What are they struggling with? You know, and number two, this is so important. Not only should we be listening, but this is so important, folks. We need to be approachable people. We need to be approachable people. If we're waiting for someone of the world to be as righteous as Christ before we'll interact with them, they're never going to get there, right? We need to be as approachable as Jesus was approachable. And even though their lifestyle and who they are may you know, um, cut you in, 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 in so many ways, 
we need to be approachable people to the world. You know, guys, often when we get persecuted for being Christians, we want to say we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But unfortunately, when I watch some interact with the world, they're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're being persecuted because they're jerks. And I just want to go up to them and lovingly say to them, shut up. You're not doing the body of Christ any good in the manner in which you're approaching this subject. Yes, it is sin. But you know what? If your sin was portrayed on the screen behind me, how appalled would all of us be about you? You know? I've been a Christian for over 30 years, and sometimes it's difficult for me to remember what it was like to be a 16-year-old apart from Christ. But sometimes when I'm witnessing to somebody, I need to remind myself that I was in their shoes at one time, and I am still just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find some food. We need to reevaluate our evangelistic efforts, folks. Does that mean we compromise? No. Does it mean we compromise? You know, I'm not saying engage in their lifestyle and then say, hey, I'm just like you. You and I are alike. We are one. Kumbaya. I love you. You love me. Now come be part of my happy family. The world is not looking for someone like themselves. They're looking for someone greater than themselves. And we can offer that in the person of Jesus Christ. But we have to be approachable people. <laughs> Number three, we have to be humble. Okay? Too much self-righteousness and pride come into our evangelistic efforts today, folks. And we need to be humble and remind ourselves that it was the grace of God that saved us. And then after the evangelistic portion, the individuals, by a work of the Holy Spirit, came to a point where they were convicted. And they cried out to Peter, Peter, what can we do to be saved? And Peter shared with them, don't be afraid to ask someone, would you like to receive Christ? Close the deal, as my one uh, sales um, manager used to say all the time. Don't just make a great presentation, close the deal. If you feel the Spirit leading you to ask them the question, would you like to receive Christ now? Don't be apprehensive to do so. And then simply pray with them. Is there a prayer of salvation? No, it's just coming alongside of a person and allowing them to cry out to God. And maybe in some cases, it's just a few un, you know, audible words that you can't truly understand because of the tears that are being cried. Let them have that moment with God and just be there for them. And then after they get saved, of course, they were baptized, which is, you know, of course, an outward display of their salvation in Jesus Christ. I do not believe that a person needs to be baptized in order to be saved. I do not agree with baptismal regeneration. But it is an outward testimony that we, by obedience, do to proclaim that we are new creations in Jesus Christ. And I know that I'm going fast for the, for the um, overview this morning. But I want to hit on these things and we're going to get it in details in the next couple of weeks because I've got a lot to say. But then what do you do with these people? Verse 42. The spirit leading through the prayer. The evangelism takes place. A work of God has taken place in the life of these individuals. He's opened their eyes. He's opened their hearts. They ask what they maybe do. Peter shares with them. So those who received the word, verse 41, were baptized. And that, they, that was added about 3,000 souls. Now they, of course, grammatically speaking of the same group of people, devoted themselves. That means they eagerly applied themselves to these things. They made it a priority. This isn't an optional thing that they just got to once in a while when it was convenient. This was a priority within their life. They continued in the apostles' teachings. 
One of my concerns is that the church today, in their trying to reinvent themselves, are inadvertently stripping away any controversial portion of the Christian existence. To make the church, that their church, or they themselves, more palatable to the world around them. Let's be honest. The gospel is offensive because it begins with the fact that you're wrong and God is right. A lot of people right there just get hung up, right? Oh, not me. I'm not nearly as bad as the person sitting next to me. You know. And a lot of people get stuck there. And so what churches are trying to do, and I confirmed it again this week, uh, they're trying to strip all of the characteristics that are controversial, are offensive to the world, and trying to put forward a very um, easy-to-swallow Christianity and so forth. Well, let's think about some of the things that Jesus said. I think I heard one, read one time that he says, I've come not to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. To divide father from mother and daughter from parents and so forth. That what he was going to do and the following of him was going to be so radical that it may deteriorate the very natural relationships that these people were in. And I think I read somewhere that unless you love me more than these, you are not worthy of me. Did he not say that? So us stripping these things away, are we not then inadvertently giving them a Christianity that is wrong? We're giving them the wrong picture. And then we wonder why the individuals haven't come to a selfless, sacrificial Christian life, right? Well, if we're selling Christianity to people based on what it benefits them, then sacrifice and selflessness is not going to be in their vocabulary. If we create a consumer mentality within the church, why then are we so shocked when people come to consume rather than to commune with God? This is why I think that more than ever, we need to be students of the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation. An individual recently, um, the president of the SBC, J.D. Greer, recently told an interviewer that he believes that a Christian can fully believe in evolution and not, you know, violate any of his Christian, you know, his Christian standing or righteousness. Well, I agree that, you know, we don't need to embrace a certain understanding of creation to be saved. But inadvertently, what he has done is he's nullified the first 11 chapters of Genesis, hasn't he? See, now we are questioning, it says God created everything in six days. Now, why is it so hard for us to believe that? Well, science tells us that an evolutionary process took place. No, science doesn't tell us. That's their interpretation of the same evidence that we're looking at. And all you have to do is look at the evidence for yourself and see that there are significant challenges to a Darwinian evolution system. But that being said, all he has done is tell an individual that the Word of God is open to various you know, uh, interpretations all the way to the point of non-literal. So, you know, though God said six days, he didn't really mean six days. Oh, there were six long periods of time. Well, if there were six long periods of time, how old was Adam? There are so many problems when you get into this. Well, how could God ever create the world in six days? It's just ridiculous. It, It obviously, I mean, no one could do anything like that. That's right, no one could. I'm surprised it took him that long. He could have done it in six seconds, couldn't he? Why are we so shocked? We now, more than ever, need the Word of God as a foundation in the shifting sands of the philosophy of our current culture and society. We are struggling with different gender identities. 
and we've sold it to the American people that this is a physiological issue and not an ideological uh, issue. Well, it appears more ideological to me since we have no scientific evidence that there's anything wired within the DNA, within the DNA of an individual that would indicate that they're vacillating between their gender identity. And now I believe we have 121 different genders to consider. God says I made man and female. Okay. Well, that's too simplistic. That's wrong. That, that, that's too narrow-minded. Well, how are we doing being open? I mean, we're so open-minded that everything's fallen out. The rationale, common sense, is no longer something that's pliable and, and available to people. Do these people struggle? Yes. Should we be sensitive? Yes. Should we love them? Absolutely. But let's not buy into the philosophies that Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 are the philosophies of this world that are based in the elementary spirits. I challenge you to, to, read, your, to read that passage if you haven't. And he says that it will rob you, cheat you from what God would have. This is one of them. This is one of them. Teaching. The first aspect of the church. This is why I believe God created the church for the believer and not for the purpose of evangelism. Paul went on to expound on this in Ephesians 4.11 when he said that the work of the pastors, apostles, and so forth were for the equipping of the saints to fulfill the work of the ministry. Churches for believers. Of course, unbelievers are welcome all the time. But the primary objective for me as your pastor is to equip you to fulfill the service in which God has for you. That's my job. And that will continue to be my job going forward. But then they fellowshiped with one another. This word fellowship is koinonia in the Greek. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. But it means a gathering where Christ is at the center. It often accompanied uh, prayer was involved, worship was involved, um, uh, encouraging one another and the word was involved. This was a time that people got together, working together for the purposes of the kingdom. The second component. The third, the breaking of bread. A scholars debate if it simply means they partook in communion uh, remembering that which Christ has done for them. There are others that see a more, um, well, individuals that hang out together. It'd be most aptly illustrated by watching a family get together on the weekends to enjoy each other's company. You know, where they come together and they enjoy each other's company, but it's not necessarily uh, surrounded, you know, uh, centered on the word and prayer like fellowship is, but the getting of together and encouraging one another and being friends with one another. And one of the things I've heard in 2019, one word that I think I've heard more than any other from so many people, many, many Christians, is how lonely they are. And that's something I really want to address in 2020. Because being the body of Christ, we are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus here on this earth and to help people who are lonely. Now, some people are lonely because, well, frankly, they're just not the easiest people to get along with, are they? But in other cases, I think that we, and including, I include myself in everything that I say, can do a better job at making myself available. When I have a few extra hours, maybe calling people and saying, hey, would you like to get a cup of coffee? And would you like to hang out for a little while? You know, So don't think it's creepy if I call you and say that. And, and please don't get all wigged out. The pastor just called me for coffee. What did I do? Did you put the check in the box? Did you? He's calling about that. No, it's just, I'm just reaching out. If I've got something to say, I'll, I'll say it directly to you. You guys know me well enough. And then they prayed. Their prayers were a, 
again, a dynamic. Notice it starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Prayer is not an option. It's a necessity within a church. And to conclude our overview this morning, and we're going to get into detail in these as we progress. Look what happened in verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. Something unique was happening. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let us be clear that here at Calvary, we are continuationists. We do believe that God is still working through the gifts of the Spirit within the body of Christ. But we also believe that the Spirit of God is subjected to the prophet, as Paul stated it was, meaning that the the Spirit of God works in harmony with what God is doing. We believe the gifts are still active today. I perfectly believe that God can heal someone today as he healed someone back then. You know, I'm, I'm very concerned when I'm asked to do funerals if this will be the one where God says, you know what, just turn around and just lead them back, to, you know, raise them. What? What, Lord? Is it really that hard for God to do? No, of course not. But it has to be God doing it, right? According to his will, his purposes. I think we've tried to create wonder in so many superficial ways to help people have an emotional experience rather than just an encounter, a true encounter with God. And when you have a society that gauges truth upon feelings in many ways more than facts, it's easy to play to that. You know, I, I, I really felt the spirit move, and, and that's very possible. Yes, of course, the spirit absolutely can move. Or was it an emotional experience that a person has? And this is where discernment, and this is where maturity all come into play. You know, I love coming here and worshiping. And I get concerned when the worship of a church becomes more of a concert. And not that I, I'm all for Christian music, man. I, trust me. I still listen to Striper to this day, you know. I love Christian music. And Christian music is an awesome tool. But when I come to worship the Lord, He's the center of attention, right? And I'm not saying these people can't be worshiping and aren't worshiping. That's not for me to say. But for me to think that this is necessary for worship, that's where I say, wait a minute, I don't know if I agree with that. Now, if you believe that if we install lights in here and work with pyrotechnics and you know, have blow Chris's eyebrows off one Sunday morning, we'll help you in the worship, let me know. I personally often thought that a flash pot on Daniel's head and the drums would be kind of unique, but I think you know where I'm getting at. Are these things actually necessary to bring a person into an encounter with God? Well, they're helpful. So let me ask you a question. Would that same music being played without those things be void of the ability of bringing one into the presence of God? Well, no. Okay. So they aren't necessarily necessary, right? For the purpose of drawing near to the Lord. And I think in some ways they can actually be a distraction. Notice that they had all things in common. And this commonality that they had was based upon the needs that people had. And they were selling their possessions. That means the extra possessions in which they had. They didn't have, this isn't a mandate that was set down by the apostles to do so. They did so because they had what they needed and any extra that they had, they were willing selflessly, sacrificially to take these things and distribute them to those who had need. If they had all of this and and somebody next to them didn't have anything, then they said, oh, we can get rid of this so that they would have something. It was just a very natural thing. And notice in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, 
notice that the Spirit is focusing in on the inward change in these people's lives. Their generosity due to who they are now in Christ has led them to do these things, selling their extra possessions, giving them to who's ever in need, interacting with one another. Now, you may just take that for granted, but you have to understand in that culture, there were such social divides due to the rich and the poor. They did not interact with one another. But Christianity dissolved that demo, those demographics and they all became one. One community, one body, and so forth. And they were coming together and they were praising God, verse 47. And the whole world hated them. Is that what your Bible says? This is one of the most astonishing verses in chapter 2. That the outside world, they had favor with all the people. This is interesting to me. Now we know that Christianity will place individuals in a position of of possible persecution. We know that. That's biblical. We know that Jesus clearly told us that the world will hate us. We know that too. But in this particular moment, God gave them favor to allow this thing to begin. Now later in Acts, when they were just solidified in Jerusalem to move them out of Jerusalem, he, brought a, he allowed persecution that spread them throughout the known world. But I will tell you, I saw this play out in the beginning of our church, where God would open doors for us with individuals who were not Christian and give us this unique favor with them to allow us to, for the church to begin. The first school, for example, that we were in, we don't ask for an offering and pass the baskets. We don't do that simply because when we started, individuals who were first coming may not have had anything and we didn't want that to discourage them. Though we fully believe that giving financially to your home church is an important responsibility between you and the Lord. I also believe that it's the beginning of proper stewardship of all that God has given you. God, whatever he has blessed you with, asks you to steward that money and through generosity give to the church in which you find to be your home. Now, I'm not going to berate you on this. We're not going to insult God by putting a money monitor up here and so on and so forth. But I will say that I do believe that a Christian has the responsibility of tithing to the church. And I use that word, let me use the word giving to the church that they are a member of. I believe it is actually a part of your worship of God. But I'm not going to demand that from you. And I'm not going to belittle God. And I'm not going to lay guilt trips upon you for not doing it, though we know who you are. <laughs> just had to keep you, so I just wanted to see if you're still listening. And you will be getting a bill in the mail. It's something I would ask you to prayerfully consider. If you're not financially giving to a Calvary that's your home church, will you take that up between you and the Lord? Well, I just can't. We just don't have enough money. I understand. We're not, well, how much you give is between you and the Lord. But I believe that anyone who wants real financial freedom must take their finances and subject them to God. And so he gets the first. Why? Because it's all his anyways. Well, I might not have enough for the end. Well, that, you know, God knows what you're in need of and he will provide for what you need. And if he's not providing, then maybe you don't need it. You ever think about that? Something else we can talk about for another day. But they had favor with the people and day by day those who were being saved. This is the, this is the, these are the foundational principles to Calvary Chapel Cardinal. The Holy Spirit, prayer, evangelism, seeing people get saved, the teaching of the word of God, the fellowship of one another around the Lord, the community of you know, interaction as we hang out together and f friendships together and grow together. 
praying together. Generosity amongst the congregation members. The love for one another amongst the congregation. This is all fruit of what God is doing. And hoping that when we are persecuted, we're persecuted truly due to righteousness sake and not self-righteousness, not pride, not arrogance. Not for being a jerk and dismissing it and thinking that we're, you know, properly representing Jesus that way. Really? Did you notice that the only one that Jesus rebuked was Peter? And he's a case in and of himself. And the religious leaders? And why did he rebuke the religious leaders? Because they were terrible witnesses for him. It's a very simple principle, guys. And this is what's going to guide us into 2020. Now, what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is flesh these out for you. Because I think the context has changed a little bit. Not the word of God. Let me be clear about that. But how these things are applied. Okay, how we put these things forward. In our world today, I do think we need to consider some aspects. For example, like we talked about in our evangelism, answering the right questions that people are asking. Teaching the word of God in a way that is truly leading individuals and feeding them and helping them grow to maturity. That's huge. We're going to talk about maturity. Let's talk about fellowship. Let's talk about getting together with one another. Let's talk about being there for one another as a Christian family. And you guys do a great job at this. Let me say that. But I think we can do a better job, don't you? But in 2020, I really believe that there are some things that we need to look at, tweak a little bit, not compromise. Please, I want to make that clear, but apply them more accurately and precisely in the culture and the world we have. All right, that's enough for today. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word.